Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about some interesting developments in the feud between Morocco and Algeria. We're going to talk about Israel's self-destructive foreign policy. And then we're, we'll discuss the weekly update to the Russo-Ukrainian war. So all that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we'll start with Israel, who has promised aid for Ukraine. Uh, this comes after some a little bit of pressure from the United States and Ukraine. Um, although, given the neo-Nazi presence in the Ukraine, it's kind of easy to see why Israel would be hesitant to support them. I don't know why they've capitulated now, uh, but I guess this is what they're doing now. But, uh... It'll be very interesting to see uh, when Russia gets around to winning the war and that whole denazification thing that they've outlined as a goal of theirs. It'll be very interesting to see the Israeli reaction to the denazification of Ukraine whenever we get around to that. I'll, uh, I've made clear my belief Russia's going to win the war, so they're probably going to get to that at some point, you know whenever they stop leaving humanitarian corridors open. But the humanitarian corridors are good. I mean, we don't want people dying when we don't have to. So, interesting that Israel is now giving aid to Ukraine, and we'll see where that gets them. Germany has set up two new LNG terminals. Uh, this is a part of their energy deal with Qatar, because, uh, as you know, Germany has stopped the certification of Nord Stream 2, and there's threats that Russia is going to cancel Nord Stream 1 in retaliation, which would cut Germany off from its easy access to natural gas. So what they're doing now is they're resorting to LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, which is more expensive, and it comes by boat. You see, when you liquefy the gas, and then you can put it in a container, and you can take it by boat, whereas in its natural state, the most efficient way to get it from point A to point B is via pipeline. So, if Russia's off the table, which they've decided is going to be the case here, they have to resort to the much more expensive liquefied natural gas, and the reason it's more expensive is, one, it's more expensive to take things by boat than by pipeline, and two... It, the only re way you can liquefy a gas is to make it really, really cold. So you, you have this natural gas that you have to freeze just to make it liquid. So that takes a lot, a, a lot of energy in and of itself just to do. And then you have to keep it frozen all the way from wherever you're buying it from to get to your country. And the distance from Qatar to Germany is definitely not a walk it's quite the journey by boat uh, especially considering that Qatar is on the wrong side of the Arabian Peninsula like the the geography here just really doesn't help Germany it's good that they're 
making deals like these so they can keep their lights on when they run out of their strategic reserves of natural gas. But just look at where Qatar is and where Germany is. Germany, uh, the port, the terminals, you have to have them in Germany if you don't have a pipeline going straight from, say, southern Europe, where they have the coastline in the Mediterranean. If you don't have a pipeline going straight from there to Germany, um, you can't do it. There are some pipelines, but those pipelines would have to be designed for liquefied natural gas. You'd have to have those terminals on the Mediterranean coast, and then you'd have to have a pipeline ready to get the gas from those ports, those terminals, where you'd offload the LNG, and then send it through pipeline to Germany. They don't have that infrastructure up yet. So you have to go all the way from Qatar, you have to go all the way around the Arabian Peninsula, you have to go through the Strait of Hormuz, which is a choke point, so Germany's going to have to keep their relations up with Iran and Arabia. So you're talking going through there. Then you're talking about going through the uh, the Red Sea, where you run the risk of getting your stuff taken from you by Somalian pirates. Uh, so you go through there. You go through the Suez Canal and hope that it doesn't get jammed again by an, a rogue boat that tilts sideways and blocks the canal for a month. So uh, there, there's another choke point. Uh, well, what are we up to? Three? Uh, the Strait of Hormuz, the Horn of Africa, the Suez Canal. Three choke points. You've now gotten all the way around the Arabian Peninsula. Now you have to go through the Mediterranean, but there's no terminals for LNG in the Mediterranean that go to Germany. That can, So you can't offload it there and take advantage of the fact that you're in the EU which might be something that happens in the future. We might see that. Um, but for now, the boat has to go the long way, so you have to go all the way to the Straits of Gibraltar, another choke point. Uh, you have to then sail around Spain, around France, through the English Channel, another choke point, and then you get to Germany's coastline. So you're talking five choke points, and well over a thousand miles like bare minimum this is a thousand and a half miles probably two thousand looking at it on the map goodness so that's a really long journey it's much longer than say a pipeline that goes straight from st petersburg russia to the baltic coastline of germany so the distance is greater the cost, because it's going by boat rather than pipeline, is greater. And the cost is also amped up by the fact that it's liquefied natural gas, because you have to freeze it. And you have to keep it frozen for all those 2,000 miles. And this is my rough estimation. It could be more or less. That's a lot of money. So gas prices in Europe, sure, Germany is going to secure themselves a, a supplier of energy. A consistent supplier at that because Qatar, we know the Middle East has no shortage of these sorts of energy sources, but the price of gas in Europe is going to go way higher if this is the resort. You're talking uh, 
ah, it's just so, that's a really big expense. And now again, again, Germany is a part of the EU, and if the EU put its mind to it, they could build light natural gas terminals by the ports that are on the Mediterranean, and that would then enable you to ship that light natural gas that you import from primarily the Middle East to other parts of Europe without having to sail those boats all the way to the country in question. Because uh, it's just more efficient if you can go, say, from Italy or from Venice or from Marseille. But we'll just use Italy because Italy's in the EU and there's sort of a nice central point to where you can sail the LNG there drop it off and then send it on a pipeline and you can go basically to any other country in basically the same distance, essentially. Uh, there, There's some huge potential for Italy if they're willing to see it. Um, it's, it's, that's massive potential, actually, for Italy if they're willing to see it. I'm just not noticing this. If they were to do this, where they, they built those LNG terminals and then were willing to negotiate deals to build pipelines to other countries in the EU... Huge, absolutely huge. They get the transit fees. They get other countries dependent on them for their energy. And all of it has to go through Italian ports. That's jobs, that's money, that's revenue. That could, that could be huge for Italy if they're willing to see the opportunity. I don't think they are. I think they're more willing to just let the pipelines come as they are, which is pipelines going straight from the producers through Italy to wherever they go, rather than actively investing in the infrastructure necessary for LNG. But, hey, that's their decision. But they have some massive potential right there. And it's all thanks to geography. But, uh, yeah, that's that's Germany and their situation with gas. They're going to get a, a, a lot higher gas prices i'll just say that much because uh, right now they they're importing it from Qatar and the united states already but the united states is over three thousand miles away at its shortest distance we produce natural gas in the interior of our country so the, the distance is actually greater then you have to f- freeze it and then sail it over the ocean Germany's energy prices are going to go up. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. I've talked about it a good deal. I did a little bit of speculation, but that's the case with Germany. But Germany is not the only country with energy security problems. Uh, as due to the sanctions on Russia, the rest of Europe also has these security issues as well. And Germany had direct pipelines. France has nuclear Britain has almost unfettered access to Norway and, for that matter, to the United States as well. But what of the rest of Europe? What of Spain? What of Portugal? What of Denmark? What of Sweden? What about about them? What about Romania? Well, Romania has oil but is it enough what about Poland where do they get their energy from they're gonna they either get it from Russia or they have to import it 
from somewhere else, and some of those other places that would constitute us somewhere else are just going to buy up the difference in the Russian gas and then resell it to the Europeans as though it was their own gas. Europe is not looking good on the energy front right now. Really, really not looking good. But uh, we'll see if the Europeans change course in time. Uh, but that would require them to accept coal and or nuclear, which they don't want to do. So we'll, we'll just see where Europe ends up. Anyway, the Tunisian president, Kais Syed, promises openness to criticism as the country prepares for constitutional reforms. Turkey opens up a brand new suspension bridge going across the Dardanelles Strait uh, from the city of Kenakel, which is uh, to the southwest of Istanbul. So there's Istanbul, there's the Sea of Marmara, and then there's a thin strip, there's like a little channel, and that's the Dardanelles Straits. Some of you might remember that name in your geography from the First World War, since the Dardanelles is uh, where the British fleet tried to get through for the Gallipoli landings as they wanted to get to Constantinople. Well, Istanbul, they called it Constantinople at the time, and eventually ended up in disaster. But, brief history lesson there, Turkey now has a new suspension bridge across the Dardanelles. So, new infrastructure. So that's that. Turkmenistan, though, has inaugurated a new president. Uh, give me a second to practice this name before I continue the recording. All right, I've done, I'm done practicing. So the country has inaugurated a new president, Sadar Berdimukhamedov, who is, interestingly enough, the son of the country's previous president. That is Gurbanguly... Uh, Gerbanguli Berdig Mukamadov. So, interesting little story. Uh, an unofficial hereditary succession. Uh, not quite a monarchy, but about as close as you'll get in the modern age. Well, yeah, no, there's monarchies in the modern age. About as close as you'll get in a democratic system, anyway. So, interesting story. But alas, we're going to get to Algeria, because Algeria has recalled their ambassador to Spain. And the reason they did this was because Spain recognized the West Sahara as Moroccan territory. Now, if you remember, we well, months back, months back, we did some episodes talking about this renewed feud between Morocco and Algeria. And... The big thing that came from the renewal of this feud was that they broke off diplomatic relations. They broke off diplomatic ties. And this was primarily over Morocco's annexation of the West Sahara. Uh, their formal annexation of the West Sahara. Uh, they had kind of been in de facto control of it for a while. But now they've officialized that they've that they own it now. Algeria has disputed the territorial claim, saying that it belongs to them. Morocco says it's theirs, and now you have a, a spat. 
because they've been feuding over this territory for decades now. And even results in an arms race every now and then between the two, uh, which is itself resulted in them being nearly evenly matched in terms of their militaries, uh, on paper at least. So, Spain, backing Morocco's claims to the territory, naturally would result in Algeria not liking Spain very much. But now they've recalled their ambassador. They haven't broken off diplomatic ties with Spain, but they've recalled their ambassador and likely view Spain as being on Morocco's side, even if Spain is just doing this out of, you know, necessity for whatever diplomatic deal they're trying to accomplish, likely over pipelines coming from Morocco that they want built or maintained because they don't want to end up like Germany where you compromise your supply of natural gas over politics. Or maybe they do, and they'll, <laughs> and they'll side with Algeria and get their energy cut off. But um, <laughs> but from Algeria's perspective, Spain is a larger power that now backs your enemy. I mean, what else would Algeria refer to Morocco as other than their enemy? They've broken off diplomatic ties. So your enemy has a major power backing them now. So the balance between you, because Morocco and Algeria were basically dead even, the balance between them has been upset. So now I wait, and I guess we wait together now, I wait to see if Algeria will reach out to France or some other larger power in the region to support them and back them up. Now France is the obvious candidate to me as Algeria, the many Algerians speak French, the French regard Algeria as core territory of France, or at least an, integri an integral part of France, and France would be more than willing to assist if Algeria asked for it. I, the French see it as a part of themselves, and Algeria, should the situation arise, could use the help. But alas... We'll wait to see what happens. Definitely will be interesting to see the, how this feud continues to develop. And if Algeria and Morocco will make amends. Or if this too will end in armed conflict. We'll just have to wait and see. But in other news, the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad has visited the UAE for the first time in 11 years. 11 years so it seems like uh Al assad is making the victory laps as he wraps up the civil war in his country and starts re-establishing diplomatic ties with regional countries and probably will eventually sign on to the belt and road that's my estimation uh because they're kind of war-torn right now and rebuilding is probably at the top of the list of priorities after winning the war I expect Syria to join. Or did they already? Alright, they, they already did, didn't they? Goodness. One of these days I'll just have to look at a map <laughs> of all the countries that have joined. I'm losing track. But it'll definitely be interesting to see the infrastructure projects that get built 
as they rebuilt their country. Uh, the Biden administration has issued a warning to China, speaking of China, they've issued a warning to China not to support Russia. China has ignored and has even has even gotten offended <laughs> by the Biden administration doing this, uh, stating that they can basically do whatever they want. That's sort of the response that the Chinese government has given, and they state that their security concerns should be respected as well as the U.S. security concerns, which I guess is fair, but, um, well, it doesn't look like the American administration is going to do that anytime soon. So I guess China will just resort to ignoring American security concerns as well, which is exactly the sort of escalation that I would like to have avoided, but, uh, interventionists run the show instead of me so we get hot air and bluster and chest thumping and saber rattling and then we get offended when other countries do the same to us it's a negative feedback loop that could be bypassed with a little bit of isolationism but alas alas the right ideology is not in charge russia <laughs> celebrates the anniversary of their Crimean annexation and Russia also states that they will respond if Bosnia tries to join NATO. Now, what exactly respond means has been left up to the imagination of the Bosnians, but we'll see if it deters them uh, from joining NATO. Given the situation Russia's in right now, where they're in a war, don't imagine that it's going to be very much of a deterrence. But, but, when the war is over, that puts everyone who ignores Russia's red lines on the chopping block for reprisals. And we'll see if that leads to some broader war that many other people are speculating is going to happen. Uh, the, the same people who speculate that Russia's losing in Ukraine are speculating that there's going to be a broader war happening. So, we'll see what happens. We'll definitely see what happens. But that is the not-so-rapid-fire news. Now we're going to get into the meat in just a moment. Alright, let's get into the meat. So, Israel on a collision course with destruction. What do I mean by that? Well, last episode, if you remember, I was talking about the situation with Israel uh, between them and Iran. How they were firing missiles at each other. Oh, well, they fired missiles at Syria, and in response to that, Iran fires missiles at the U.S. consulate in Iraq. So you have this encroachment upon each other, where Iran is now ramping up its responses to what Israel does, gradually and gradually towards being the same as what Israel does. Like, Iran has been rather restrained in their responses to what Israel does to Iran itself and Iran's allies. But now, I, in response to Israel bombing Iran's ally, Syria, who has become a tighter and tighter ally of Iran, Iran is now bombing the U.S. consulate of the United, uh, of the United States, well, duh, but the consulate of Israel's ally. So in exchange for Israel bombing Iran's ally, Iran now bombs 
uh, Israel's ally, and sort of indirectly the consulate, not the United States itself. But the message is there. That's a tip for tap. So my argument in the last episode was that this can't go on. This can't go on this way without coming to a head. And I mean, arm, I'm talking armed conflict. There's no way they just keep firing missiles at each other and each other's allies and don't just let the cat out the bag and go, well, I guess we're at war, and then use the full force of their militaries. Uh, accordingly, because I've said before, they're in an undeclared state of war, and now that undeclared war, state of war is ramping up. Uh, these these missile attacks are more and more prevalent, as uh, especially as Iran starts retaliating in equal measure to what Israel does. So then Israel tries to do it more to assert their strength over the region. But Iran has the capability to keep pace, as they're now demonstrating, or at least they're able to keep pace with the current level of intensity. Maybe they get outmatched in a broader conflict. Maybe Israel gets outmatched in a broader conflict. But regardless, the situation got me thinking. Got me thinking. Uh, So, in response to me thinking about it, because there's a number of things that I came across. But I started looking at the numbers involved. Specifically, I started looking at the populations. Those numbers. And I'll get into what I came across in this little tiny study of mine. So Israel has a population of 9.8 million people. Right. Palestine has 4.9 million. So there's half as many Palestinians as there are Israelis. The Palestinians have higher birth rates. So gradually they're going to make up bigger and bigger numbers and catch up at some point. As we move throughout the 21st century, if current birth rates continue to apply and all that. But within the geographical, you know, uh, the geographical expression that we refer to as Israel, a third of the population is Palestinian. But on the other side, though, Iran has not 10 million, not 15 million. They have basically the same population as Germany. Now, it was, uh, this is the population of Iran, it was at 78 million the last time I checked. And then, for the purpose of accuracy in this episode, I checked again. And Iran has 83.9 million. For context, Germany, who was at 80 million before, Germany today has around 83.2 million people. Iran has more people than Germany. And their population is growing where Germany is about to go through demographic decline. Iraq, an Iranian ally, has 40 million. Syria. Another Iranian ally only has 17 million, but granted, they've shed a couple million from uh, migration and 
the well death so we'll probably see that number rebound a little bit especially as the war comes to a close but israel in continuing their offensive footing against iran iraq and syria simultaneously is inadvertently picking a fight with 141 million people 141 million people. Israel, a country of 9.8 million people, picking a fight with 141 million. And considering that any war Israel fights is automatically a war on two fronts, because they'll have to, whoever they fight, they'll have to fight the Palestinians in the event of armed conflict, which I believe they're on track for. You have armed conflict, the Palestinians are going to fight you. So you add the population of Palestine to this mix. You go from 141 million to 146 million people when you count Palestine. So the numbers that Israel's dealing with, and I'm not entirely sure that it has dawned on the Israelis, how not in their favor these, these figures are for them. And I know population isn't everything. It's not everything. But it's a very important figure. Uh, very important is sort of giving you a, the context of the magnitude of it all because I could just say that Israel picking a fight with three countries it's a 1v3 but listing off the populations of those countries adds a whole new layer of context because uh, one country against three countries well maybe you can win but a country of 9.8 million against a combined force of 141 million well that that's uh, <laughs> that changes the context a lot. Changes the context a lot. Iran has a million man army. A million man army. And they routinely have militias operating in Syria on the side of the Syrian government. Which means that they have to get through Iraq. Which means that they either have to sneak their way through or Iraq gives consent towards Iranian military movement through their territory to get to Syria. Now, if Iran can get a militia to Syria, then Iran can get an army to Syria. And if Iran can get an army to Syria, we'll just look at the handy-dandy map of the world, you'll see that that means they can get an army not just to Syria, but they can get an army to Israel's border. Israel has a border with Syria. They have a border with Syria. So if Iran can get militias to fight in the Syrian civil war, then they can get an army to Israel's border. It's that simple. Especially when you consider the fact that Lebanon and Jordan are also within Iran's sphere of influence, uh, but to lesser degrees than I Syria and Iraq. That means Iran, you know, I just can't stress the importance of that enough when we're talking about the potential for an armed conflict between these two. Iran's million-man army, well, not all of it, of course, but they can get large numbers of it, can get to Israel, which means that the full force of those numbers advantages would matter 
um, matter, and they matter a lot. So, I don't think it's dawned on the Israelis what they're dealing with. And if it has, they're definitely taking a peculiar approach to coping with the situation. They've decided to be more aggressive rather than doing what Arabia is doing, which is being cooperative. Now, I, uh, in also thinking about the situation between Israel and Iran, I couldn't help but think about the incredible degree of situational awareness that is being demonstrated by Saudi Arabia. I'm just impressed. I am routinely impressed. The more I think about it, the more impressed I am. Because you have Arabia, who is a smack dab in the middle of the Middle East. When you think of the Middle East, the first country that comes to mind is Saudi Arabia. At least, at least that's the case with me. Maybe, maybe it's a different country for you. But when I think the Middle East, I think Saudi Arabia. And they're right there. They're right there. Smack dab in the middle of, well, the Arab world, too. So not only the middle of the Middle East, they're in the middle of the Arab world. They're at the heart of global energy trade. Really important country. Really important country. But they're not an omnipotent country. They can't hand they they will not be able to fight a conflict against everybody around them at the same time they have to if they're going to have a fight they have to pick it but over the past decade or so a little bit longer they the fights that they've picked have ended up being losing propositions for them they joined forces with rebels in the syrian civil war they helped sponsor certain militant groups, Islamist militant groups in Iraq when it was more destable. Well, unstable, I should say. And they've backed the government in Yemen against the Houthis in Yemen. Now, what do all those have in common? They're all losing propositions, as I've mentioned. Because the Houthis are winning. Those militants in Iraq, borderline, don't exist anymore. Certainly ISIS doesn't. Well, maybe they... You know, no, no, no. Not enough to care. There's not enough ISIS there to care. I'll say that much. And the Syrian civil war is coming to a close, and it is the Assad government, not the rebels, who has won. Three losing propositions in three different countries all on Arabia's border. And Iran put themselves on the winning side of all three of those conflicts. So now what you have is Arabia realizing that, hey, all these interventions we've done have failed and all the countries we did those interventions in that we tried to overthrow with the interventions probably aren't going to like us. Hmm. But they have a mutual ally in Iran. Maybe instead of being hostile towards Iran and all of Iran's allies at the same time, let's get in good with Iran. Let's have a rapprochement. Let's have detente. Let's talk. Let's reestablish diplomatic ties with Iraq. Let's let's accept diplomacy from the Assad government in Syria. Let, you know, common sense 
adjustments to their their geopolitics. Really, it's just that's a common sense adjustments to their strategic position. Instead of being at odds with every point of the compass, they're now pulling back and reversing course. While they still can, right? While they still can, because Syria is in a war, so you can still you still have time to get in on the winning side, even if they're gonna look at you like it's a bit of a hollow victory. But at the very least, you're not gonna go down with the ship of the rebels and be permanently slandered as enemies of Syria. You can win over a little bit of Syria, or at the very least, win over the Syrian government. Not that Assad's going to forget that you backed the rebels, but at the very least, you can establish working relations. The Houthis. Arabia is slowly but surely pulling out of Yemen. Now, whether or not that will result in them having diplomatic ties with the Houthis remains to be seen. I haven't come across anything about that yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if as a Houthi victory becomes more evident in Yemen, wouldn't be surprised if Saudi Arabia reaches out for diplomatic ties with the Houthis instead of getting hit with ballistic missiles from the Houthis like they did a couple a couple months back. Uh, Arabia and the UAE, for that matter, when they got hit with ballistic missiles. And I wonder who could have supplied them with those ballistic missiles. Maybe, maybe it would have to be a country that made them, you know. I can't put my finger on it. It rhymes with Iban, Idan, something like that. But anyway, you have them pulling out of that conflict. You have them pulling out of the Syrian conflict and openly backing the Assad government now. And the UAE is doing the same as well. They're letting Assad come to them. And they're having a rapprochement with Iran, which has shown results. Iran was who's previously was banned from having any anybody go into Arabia. Arabia allowed the members, the board members of from Iran who are on the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. They allowed Iran's members to be present at the physical headquarters which is in Arabia. Whereas before they were banned from even entering the country. So that's a huge step. Huge step. So you have Arabia making the necessary adjustments to where they're not left in a really, really uncomfortable position when all of these conflicts finally simmer down. Well, uh, the conflict in Iraq has largely simmered down. Uh, the conflict in Syria is coming to a close. The conflict in Yemen will probably be will probably be the last to come to a close but at the very least you don't have to end up on the shit list of Iraq, Syria and the Houthis at the same time while being at odds again with Iran who backs all three of those countries and actively enabled them to get a grip over their situations like Iran has played an integral part towards the success of the current governments um, of Iraq, Syria, and the Houthis 
in winning these conflicts that they've been a part of. Iraq has played an integral role, which has cemented them, not Iraq, Iran has played an integral role, which has made them an ally of all these countries. And given Iran's superior power when compared to all three, makes Iran the the uh, senior partner in all those relationships. Iran has become the dominant power of the Middle East. I say it basically every episode now. Rolls off the tongue very nice. But they are. And they have, courtesy of these uh, wars and their role in them, they've secured for themselves a lot of allies. Allies that encircle Arabia if Arabia continued its previous course. They would have Iraq and Syria to their north. They'd have Iran to their east. They'd have a Houthi-controlled Yemen to their south. Oh, and by the way, Iran can send troops uh, through Iraq and Syria, so you you could have Iraq's million-man army on your border any day now. So instead of being presented with that and being presented with getting outflanked by ballistic missile barrages from a Houthi-controlled Yemen, instead of letting that happen, they've decided, hey, maybe it's a good idea to not be on Iran's shit list, and the shit list of Iraq, and the shit list of Syria, and the shit list of the Houthis in Yemen. Arabia went for the reproachment, and it's bearing fruit, and I am, again, routinely impressed by the degree of situational awareness they have. And when you contrast that with Israel, it's just night and day. It it just really is night and day. But this reproachment has also led me to speculate on how it might lead it might lead Arabia to side with Iran in the event of this showdown between Iran and Israel. And what that might mean, because even if Arabia doesn't necessarily go to war, I could see them supplying arms, or supplying intel, or putting in a good word uh, with speeches where they say that they are they stand with Iran. They'll they'll do their own hashtag where hashtag I stand with Iran. That that'll be the Arabian hashtag when Iran and Israel their tensions boil over. If they want to, you know, round out this reproachment with something solid and really cement themselves in the hearts of the Iranians, as Arabia would be a huge asset to Iran. This is no, this is no nowhere. Arabia is not a nowhere country. This is, they're the leader of the Sunni sect of the Muslim faith, which is the majority sect of the Muslim faith. So having, in the event of this conflict between Israel and Iran that I see coming, if neither one of them changes course, namely Israel, uh, that's the only way that we get a change in course is if Israel does it first, because Iran is responding. So if Israel stops, Iran will stop, most likely. No, I could be wrong on that, but as of now, Israel is the aggressor. So Israel would have to stop first for Iran to stop. I don't think Israel's going to stop. But the escalation will eventually mean physical 
conflict. So if in the event of that physical conflict, Arabia continues their reproachment and sides with Iran, that would be huge. That would be absolutely huge. Uh, it, that would put immense pressure on other Muslim countries. If the Holy Land, because Arabia has uh, Mecca and Medina, the holy cities. If the Holy Land, the country that holds the Holy Land of the Islamic faith, were to side against Israel and side with Iran, that would put immense pressure on other Muslim countries to do the same. Uh, the ones that I'm looking at being the biggest players in the event of this happening would be Egypt and Turkey. They would be the most notable countries in this severe, in the, the event that this scenario plays out. No, we're speculating wildly here at this point, but ah, that's the fun point of geopolitics. So in the event that the Holy Land sides with Iran and puts that pressure on other Muslim countries to do the same, Egypt and Turkey would be the countries that I'd have my eyes on as they are one in the region. Shit, Egypt has a border with Israel, which makes them even more interesting in this scenario. Turkey has a navy, so that uh, you're talking a total encirclement on land, sea, and air in the event that this happens. Uh, uh, frick. Uh, heck. Hell. I can even see Arabia using the optics of this. The optics of them. The leaders of the Sunni Muslim faith siding with Iran. The leader of the Shia Muslim faith, uh, Sunni and Shia Islam, united against the heretic Jewish enemy, I can see Arabia straight up declaring a holy war and just playing those optics for all that they are worth. In the minds of the world, in the minds of the Arab world, in the minds of the Islamic world, and most importantly, in the case of geopolitics here, in the minds and hearts of the Islam of the Iranian government because that's who ultimately you want to get in good with if Iran's going to be the dominant power of the Middle East I could see them doing that now again this is probably well definitely a very extreme situation that isn't all that likely to happen I I, I see this as the worst case scenario for Israel uh, and uh, it, it it just it would just be really really bad for Israel. I'll put it that way. It was it would mean being in a state of conflict with the Persia Pact, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. It would mean being in a state of conflict with Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Jordan, Egypt, and Palestine. These are all Israel's immediate neighbors. Um, and these would be the countries that would have the most influence on how any showdown militarily with Israel would go, because of their proximity to Israel. So then, going back to the numbers game that we were playing earlier in terms of population, I decided to look at the populations of all these other countries who would play big roles in this worst-case scenario. Because Turkey has 84 million by itself. 84 million people. So that's even more than Iran. Jordan has another 10 million. Lebanon has 6.8 million. Egypt has 102 million people by itself. 
by itself, and that's 102 million people. So in our speculation of this worst case scenario for Israel, Israel, can, if it continues the course that it's on and ends up in the worst case scenario, they'd be facing a conflict where they would be at odds with a coalition of Muslim nations that would have a combined population of 345 million people. And 350 million if you count Palestine. For perspective, that's more people than the total population of the United States, where we have about 330 million people. So that's, that is some ridiculous numbers you're talking. There's no way Israel wins that. There's no way Israel wins that. Especially if they're the ones who instigate the war this time around. The, the other wars that they fought were primarily defensive. If Israel's the one who instigates the war this time, which they would be, they're the aggressors. That, those are some unwinnable odds. I'll just say that. Because remember, remember, Israel is a country of not even 10 million people. Not even 10 million. So... In that worst-case scenario, you're talking 35 to 1. That's terrible. Those are terrible odds to be up against. I don't see it. But, again, that's the worst-case scenario. The more likely scenario is the first one that I played out, which is Israel versus the Persia Pact. Iran, Iraq, Syria, and maybe Lebanon, which is... Uh, 46 million people, counting Palestine. Um, that's a 150, what, three? Uh, it's 153 million if you count Lebanon, but they're the, the biggest maybe in all that. So, again, Israel's country, 10 million people. The odds then are about 14 or 15 to 1. Still really, really bad. And I doubt that Israel has the technological or lead military leadership advantages that they would need in order to win another war against a large coalition of their neighbors. Uh, I, I just don't... I think they've lost that edge. They have a good technological edge, and they've been in a state of almost constant conflict, so they would have a good leadership advantage in terms of knowing what Israel, the Israeli military is capable of and playing off of that. And they fly routinely over other people's airspaces, so they have a really good lay of the land. So those are some advantages that Israel would have. But I don't think it would be enough to win because Syria, when we look at the other side of here, Syria may be devastated by its long civil war. But its army is as hardened and experienced as the Iranian army is large. And Iran, again, has a million-man army. So Syria's army is about as veteran, and Iran's army is as large as Israel's army would be advanced in terms of technology and leadership. And I think that those two forces when presented against each other 
would result in Israel losing. I, I, I really don't see Israel having the wherewithal to survive a fight like this. I just really don't. Especially if Iran is now demonstrating equal capabilities to what Israel does. If Israel comes under a massive ballistic missile barrage, uh, they're going to have a really hard time coming back from that. Because the bombing on the U.S. consulate showed that Iran can hit a precision strike. Not necessarily with the same level of precision that the U.S. or Russia could do, but enough precision to hit a moderately large target in a congested area. And that's a huge advantage. Meaning, I, uh, Iran would not just be firing blindly, they could fire at specific targets. In Israel, Israel's not a very big place, all the targets are going to be pretty close together. So if you can hit Israel at all, you can hit everywhere. And Israel has to know this. And Iran would have the strategic depth of all their allies. Because the front line would be in Syria. But that means the the front line troops are going to be the Syrian army who's been fighting a war for 11 years. Backed up by the mass of the Iranian army which is then backed up by scads of ballistic missiles that Iran has. And whatever support that would come from Iraq, maybe in the form of a militia or two. Iran, Iraq, Syria, they all produce oil. So your energy logistics are met, especially if Iran can get oil to Lebanon through Iraq and Syria and through the Suez Canal, they can definitely supply an army. Where's Israel going to get their energy from? Where are they going to get it from? Arabia? Not if the worst case scenario plays out. But would Arabia back them up? Or even if Arabia doesn't join, would they choose to stop giving them oil? And support the Muslim war effort instead? Who knows? These are the uncertainties you deal with when speculating a little bit too much. But... I don't see Israel pulling off another Yom Kippur or a six-day war. I really don't. I really, really don't. But the good, the good thing for Israel, though, the good thing for them, is that it is not too late for course correction. Israel doesn't have to kill itself with a really bad foreign policy. But so far, it seems that change in course is about as unlikely as it is necessary. That means we're probably on track for a military confrontation between Israel and Iran. And every couple months or so, the situation escalates. And eventually you can only escalate so much before you end up in a declared state of war rather than in a silent state of war like they're currently in. That's Israel. I'll definitely have my eyes on them. But now we get to the weekly Russo-Ukrainian war update. So, we're on day 24 now. The siege of Mariupol, Chernihiv, and Nizhyn continue. Uh, With most news that you'll see probably coming out of the siege of Mariupol. 
with the other two sieges largely ignored from what I can see, but uh, the, they keep closing. They, they keep tightening, I should say, which means that the Russians are probably gearing up to take the cities completely. Uh, they are giving the city of Mariupol another chance to surrender. I saw them ask again, and which this was uh, refused. So we'll probably see the Chechens get sent in. They specialize in guerrilla warfare. We'll probably see the Syrian fighters get sent in. They also specialize in, in urban combat. So with those two forces on Russia's side, it's probably a matter of time before they smoke out the Ukrainian military forces in these cities. And if that doesn't work, the U the Russians can always just use force. I mean, it's they've given plenty of time. They've given plenty of time for people to get out of the way. And then they continue using the bombs and the missiles. They'll probably do what they've been doing, where they'll say, hey, we're going to strike this place at this time, and then they'll if you're there at, at that place and at that time, well, they told you. And I guess you're dead now. But So we have these sieges continuing. And a little side note, though. Probably, we're probably getting a very good lesson in modern siege warfare. Uh, that's just been on my mind these past couple of weeks as we've been observing Russia siege cities. We haven't really seen a modern siege with a modern military. We saw Aleppo, and we saw a number of Syrian cities, but those are sort of tiny forces from modern armies combined with much more irregular forces. I mean, the Iranians have militias over there for crying out loud. But here, you have the actual Russian army fighting the actual Ukrainian army, and you have a modern siege. Multiple of them. So, I'm pretty sure if militaries are paying attention, they can probably get a really good lesson in how to conduct modern-day siege warfare. Now, where that's going to be used for them, who knows? Um, maybe some other country has a civil war that pops up out of nowhere, and sieging down cities suddenly becomes a very important and useful skill to have. But, that's just been on my mind, especially since I've been learning about the uh, early gunpowder age and the pike and shot era warfare, where sieges were actually pretty very, very common in Europe. So, just something that's been on my mind. But, I'll digress. So, that, that, those are the sieges. The Russian troops have pushed west. Uh, no, the Russian troops that are west of Kiev have pushed further south, which is tighten the noose, they've essentially cut off the retreat from Kiev to Lviv, which is the working capital of the country right now, uh, tightening the noose and threatening a total encirclement, which if the other troops on the east bank of the Dnieper move in closer, you'll probably have a full encirclement. You'll probably have a full encirclement. Um... And I do believe this encirclement will likely take place very quickly after the humanitarian corridor has closed again and Russia resumes its offensive again. The front, though, for the time being, has largely remained unchanged 
as most of the fighting has been in the street-to-street -street battles in Mariupol and Kharkov, and probably a little bit in Chernihiv and Nizhyn, but I imagine once Russia closes these humanitarian corridors again, they'll do another rapid blitz across the entire front, and then settle down to open up more humanitarian corridors. So, my guess is we're probably going to see more movement on the front lines this week, given we spent last week with humanitarian corridors, so I imagine these corridors are going to get closed, and then Russia's going to resume the offensive. So, that being said, it'll be interesting to see where exactly the Russians choose to strike. Will they complete the encirclement in the Donbass? Or will they go for the encirclement of Kiev? Or will they go for both? Will they close one of these siege pockets and just unleash the artillery on them? Who knows? But it will be interesting to see where the Russians strike and see if what they uncover as they do so creates uh, more of a political whirlwind over here in the United States, like with <laughs> the biolabs. Uh, it seems like the longer this war goes on, the more the American government gets hurt. That's... Because, uh, <laughs> uh, like, we're sanctioning ourselves at this point and embargoing their oil, but we made ourselves dependent on their oil because we stopped... We cut off the leases here. It's... I've gotten into that. I won't go on another rant about uh, a very slow energy uh, policy here in the United States. I'll leave that to my past self and my future self if something new happens but i won't go into that rant again instead i'll talk about how the united states has sent 100 kamikaze drones to ukraine i mean how nice of congress to donate 100 kamikaze drones to the russian military uh oh but they're going to ukraine i hear you say not russia well when Ukraine dies and Russia walks away from this one Ukraine bigger than it was a month ago, all those drones and Javelin missiles will end up in the hands of the Russian military. So that's why I consider this a donation to Russia. So uh, that's what I am pretty certain is going to happen, assuming they all, don't all get used up. I'm sure, I'm sure the Javelins won't all get used up. They have too many of them. But the drones might, but everything that's left over is going to go into the Russian military stockpiles. Just like all those weapons we gave to the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan ended up in the hands of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, who some might call the Taliban. So, this has happened before, so I expect it to happen again, where all the weapons we send to one faction goes to the other faction the second the faction we backed loses. So... That's what I expect to happen. Uh, but Ukraine has been less of a bystander in their own destruction this week. Uh, as they, along with Moldova, have joined the continental European power system to, in Ukraine's case, avoid dependence on the Russian power grid. Uh, but I'm not sure this will give them the independence that they seek. You see, power grids, in order to work, first need power. Now, in a modern economy, you're going to need either nuclear or fossil fuels 
to generate enough power to supply your own country, let alone another country. So as it stands, uh, everyone except for France is dismantling their nuclear power plants. Uh, which means that France is essentially one of the only countries in Europe that has lots of nuclear power. But France does not generate enough energy to power all of the EU, which means it does not generate enough power to power all of the EU and Ukraine and Moldova. So that leaves fossil fuels, which most of the continent already uses for its energy. But now we have to ask, where do those fossil fuels come from? Now, Europe is abundant in coal resources. They're very abundant. They don't like to use it, but they're very abundant. How they got the whole industrial revolution thing off, off the ground and rolling. There's just so much coal that don't know what to do with it. But Europe is not abundant in natural gas and oil, the sources of energy that they prefer to use. Europe is not abundant in these resources. So where then does Europe get them from? Now, there's a sort of a break between East and West. Western Europe gets their oil from Norway, North Africa, and the Middle East predominantly, and a little bit from America. Eastern Europe gets their oil from Russia and the Middle East. That's oil. As for natural gas, Europe gets that from Russia. Uh, they, now, they don't get all of it from Russia, but Russia supplies anywhere from 30 to 40% of Europe's natural gas, depending on the country, and, some, and for some it's higher percentage than that. So, Ukraine may have switched grids but if the countries that Ukraine's power grids are linked up to get their fuel resources that they generate the power from, if they get those fuel resources from Russia, then Ukraine is ultimately getting its energy from the same country. They're just going to pay more for it due to the fees that they'll have to pay in order to pay for the power grid services and the energy transfer from one country to another. So, in essence, Ukraine has not changed its strategic calculus. Uh, that, now, that's discounting the fact that they are at war with Russia, and changing your grid isn't exactly going to change that fact either. It, I mean, it seems to me that all they've managed to do is add a middleman to their acquisition of Russian energy. And that is just wild to me but uh, I get, if it makes them feel better I guess but I don't see why Ukraine needs to pay more energy than they need to when they're at war because uh, interestingly enough the gas is still flowing through the pipeline that goes through Ukraine so they don't necessarily need they, <laughs> excuse me they don't necessarily need to pay more for gas but it seems like that's what they're gonna do not for gas, but for energy. But it seems like that's what they're going to do. They have switched their grid, and now they're going to pay more for the same energy. I, 
I don't I don't know what to say. Or I don't know what to say. The I'll just say that energy policies around the world are not uh definitely not at the top of their game. Definitely not what they could be. Uh, at, well, it's just not. I know. Well, you know what? It's not fair to say the world. It's not fair to say the world. Russia's energy policies are on point. They, they're fighting a whole war in Ukraine, and they're still supplying the Ukrainians with natural gas. Now there's an energy policy for you. <laughs> and they're building more pipelines to China in the process. So, just using Russia as the example here, uh, global, the world's energy policies aren't all out of whack. It's just Europe and America. Uh, I mean, heck, Qatar is selling the most expensive form of this gas that you can sell to Germany because Germany decided not to use a pipeline that it already built and paid for. But they're not going to shut down the other one. They're not going to shut down Nord Stream 1. They're going to keep North. They're, they're not going to use Nord Stream 2. But they're standing with Ukraine. But they're going to keep Nord Stream 1 open. Man, look. I'll just... <laughs> Europe and America have issues uh, with energy and their relations to it. It's costing them money and making Russia and the rest of the energy producers a lot more money. So, I'll just leave it at that, because that is all I have for you today. And I do hope you've enjoyed my, uh, uh, goodness, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my, uh, my glorious geopolitical podcast. Now, the world, as we know, is always changing. But we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, say our boost.